Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as Pastor Steve delivers this week's message. Gotcha. Before you're seated this morning, I'd like you to read the, uh, the passage with me today, the kind of our theme for the study we've been in. We're talking about the power of good news, and it's really encapsulated uh, in this, these particular verses. So Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, would you read them with me together, please? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew Then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Before you're seated, why don't you greet somebody? Tell them, say, hey, I have good news for you. Tell them that. As you find your seats this morning, we're talking about the word that we just read from the verse, the word gospel, which by simple definition means good, good news. And we found in that verse that that good news, the gospel, is powerful. So what we're talking about in these, uh, these weeks together in, in Romans is the power of the good news. We're early kind of in our study, if, if you've been with us at all, we're, we're still early just diving into the book of Romans and it's going to be a journey that we'll, we'll take over several weeks. But in these first few verses, we saw Paul introduce himself to the people, kind of introduce uh, who he is, why they should listen to him, and then begins to introduce the theme, which we just talked about in verses 16 and 17. And then he'll dive into now the body of the letter, starting in verse 18. But with that, um, I think what Paul does, his writing journey takes a very interesting twist. Starting in verse uh, 17 that we just read... For the, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, we saw that in verse 17, okay? So it's kind of, we're going to talk about the gospel. I get that. The gospel of God is revealed. But what happens then is it's almost as if Paul takes a, his thought gets interrupted, which I know is not true, but that's almost what it seems like because he doesn't pick up that theme again until chapter 3 in verse 21 where it says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, there it is again, the righteousness of God has been made known. So he's revealing it, chapter 1, and he's going to pick up that thought again in chapter 3, but it's those verses in between that we're going to spend the time with the next several weeks, because it's in that in-between passage, those verses between 1 and 3, that really begins to help us understand. Now, he's going to spend the majority of the book of Romans talking about specifically the good news of the gospel and just what all comes with that good news. But before he introduces the, the good news... Paul is going to give us some bad news. How many have heard someone ever say to you, hey, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news, which you want to hear first, right? Okay, you've all been there, okay? Uh, Let let me give you some examples. I just saw some some, uh, uh, pictures you might recognize or you might relate to on on the screen. Uh, First one, there we go. The bad news is time flies. 
The good news is you're the pilot. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Keep, keep watching. <laughs> good news, I finally got my computer connected to the wireless printer. Bad news, not sure which house I need to go to to get my documents. <laughs> Somebody, one of my neighbors is getting all my stuff, okay? I thought that was good. Good news is we managed to save your life. The bad news is you're going to spend the rest of it paying for the good news, okay? <laughs> all in the medical field, understand that. Uh, the bad news is I actually took the wrong medication today. Good news, I'm now protected from heartworms, fleas for the next three months. Good stuff, right? <laughs> the bad news, nothing lasts forever. The good news, nothing lasts forever, right? Okay, but this last one is the one that I wanted you to get. R.C. Sproul, theologian, said this, and it really kind of introduces what we're going to talk about. The gospel is only good news when we understand the bad news. And that's what Paul's going to do for us in these first few verses of Romans. He's going to show us the bad news because then that just helps us understand how important the good news really is. We really, without the bad news, are not going to understand or appreciate the good news. For instance, let's say that you are sound asleep in your, your bedroom one night when suddenly, without warning, a stranger bursts through your bedroom door, comes and grabs you by the shoulders and begins to drag you from your bed before you can react down the hallway out the front door. Now, most of us would not appreciate that unless we understood that our house was on fire and that stranger happened to be a fireman that was trying to save our life. Unless we understand the bad news, we may not appreciate the good news. And that's what Paul's going to do for us in Romans. He's going to help us, first of all, understand the bad news. And what we're going to see in these next couple of chapters is the bad news involves, just in simple terms, the consequences of sin. From beginning to end, the consequences of sin is the bad news and how it has affected all of us. Now, until we appreciate the fact that we are destined to hell because of our sin, we're not going to appreciate the fact that God has delivered us. Until we understand the fact that, that we are hopeless without Jesus, we won't appreciate the fact that Jesus offers us true hope. Until we understand the fact that uh, through the gospel that we are sinners, we're never going to truly appreciate the Savior that we talk about so often. And that's what Paul is going to do. He's going to help us understand the bad news so that we will further appreciate how important this good news is for us and for the world around us. So what he's going to do, we're going to begin this explanation by proclaiming the bad news, and then he's going to start. So let's go back to verse 17 again. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed... That's what we just read. We know that. That's part of our theme. For in the, but verse 18 now starts this way. And I emphasize the, the three-letter three word for. Now, depending on your translation, there's a few translations that don't include that, that word for whatever reason. But it is, a, it, it is in the original, and it has an important connection. In fact, if, if you have your Bibles, your electronic, you can back up a little bit. You can see that he's used it in these last couple of verses. Verse 16, for instance, twice. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because, it's the same word for, it is the power of God. Verse 17, then, as we saw, for in the gospel, the right, that word for is a word of explanation. It's a word of intensifying what he's saying. This is what it is, and now let me show you why, or let me show you the, how important this is. So that letter for, or that word for is important, it's in, very important, this word. What he's going to show us is the gospel the gospel is showing us, is emphasized by how important we understand it to be based on what's going to happen in verse 18 
and beyond. The gospel is supporting, is, is there to support the understanding of sin. It's there for us to get grasp it. The foundation that upholds the righteousness of God is the gospel. But to get that, for, and then we talk about this next phrase, read it, I'll read it for you, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Today, in the next few weeks, Paul's going to be our fireman. I hope hope even I can be a fireman for some. You you may not like or appreciate or get uncomfortable with, with the words that you're going to hear, but understand there's a reason for that. That God wants you to understand how drastic this, this whole idea of the bad news is so that you can appreciate that God wants to save you from that. Or God has saved you from that. Or God wants to save your neighbors, your family, and friends from that. It's important that we recognize that this is a, this is a fireman verse. This is someone showing you, and, and maybe even without understanding, that you need to hear how important it is that you accept or that someone accepts what we are going to do. We all need to be Rescued. So what we're going to talk about is just being aware of how bad this good news really is so that the gospel, the good news of the gospel, really makes sense to us. So let me describe what we're going to talk about today, and that's that first phrase, the wrath of God. That's what's introducing now not only this verse, but it's going to introduce the next section that we talked about, and everything kind of comes back to this idea for the wrath of God. Let's understand this, because it's a word that we don't use quite as often anymore, but it it is still in in vogue, and there's a very important understanding. By definition, it means a deep, intense anger and indignation. Well, let's take that for the word anger we use means the stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by sense of injury or insult. And indignation that we talked about means that it is something that's righteous anger aroused by injustice and, and baseness or sin. So that's the wrath of God. And according to the Bible, that's an attribute of God. The wrath of God. It's something that God exhibits, something that God shows. And, and that's, in fact, Psalm 711, I think is one of the verses that kind of helps capsulize. God is a righteous judge. And that's kind of how Romans, these first verses, shows us. He's setting as a judge. But notice this, a God who displays his wrath every day. The wrath of God. You got to understand that the wrath of God is as much a personal, emotional exhibition attitude of God as his love is. It's important we understand that we can't have either or. God is a God of love. God is love. But the wrath of God is just as real, and they both are important parts of the personality and the, and the actual love and the existence of, of God. But it's not a topic that we like to talk about. The wrath of God is one that, we, that often, I'll be honest, personally would try to jump over if I could. You don't have a lot of songs written about, you know, amazing wrath, how great the sound, right? <laughs> that condemned a wretch like me. I mean, we don't sing about that, right? We don't talk about the, uncons- the, uh, the unending, reckless wrath of God. You know, we don't, we don't sing about, we don't, you don't hear that much because it's not something that's popular for us to consider. It has these, these things that we, we almost think that that couldn't be worthy of God. That's something that's not, that we, we just don't understand what, what that is. And, and it's, 
it's not a favorite topic of most preachers, but for some that do, that some people see them as preachers who come up and they just kind of, they're, they're almost say it with a grin on their face, you know, God's going to get you, right? That's, that's how we picture talking about the wrath of God. But most preachers I know don't do that, and most preachers you know don't. That's a bad stereotype because here's the truth. If you can talk about the wrath of God, and if I, and if I can preach the wrath of God without either a, at least a tear in my eye or at least a shudder in my soul, then I've missed the point. Because that's how, that's how important and how drastic this is. I'm not talking about something that I'm, that I'm holding over your head with a hammer to say, I, I hope you get this, but if not, ha, ha, ha. It's, it's not. The wrath of God is a serious, drastic issue that we have to understand. And Paul makes that, makes that very clear to you. But it's, it's never been popular topic, but it is one that we have to talk about. It's one that people have skipped over to their own peril. And churches have skipped over and, and they're misleading many because it is something that has to be talked about, but it's never been a popular issue. I, I read this this week. A theologian by the name of Packer said this, the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians by and large have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. In other words, Christians don't even want to talk about it. What I found interesting about that quote, it was written in 1973. So here's a man saying that 45 years ago that the condition of wrath, nobody wants to talk about it. 45 years later, it's only worse. We just want to ignore it as if it doesn't happen, and we can't. It's real. The wrath of God, Paul's going to tell us, is still something that we have, to, we have to address and we have to talk about. But it's never been popular, even in the Bible. I guarantee you the writers weren't, the, the, I, I have no idea, I wasn't there. But I just don't get the impression, in fact, many of them, we have, Jeremiah was referred to as a weeping prophet because as he talked about the wrath of God, it just broke his heart. Lamentations, the whole book of weeping over what God was going to do. Through, so it's not that they stood at the same way, but... Here's what a, uh, a, an author said. A study of the concordance of your Bible will show that there are more references in Scripture to, his, to God's anger, fury, and wrath than there are to his love and tenderness. Because God knows how important this topic is, that we, we get it. Let me, let me give you an example. Old Testament example. Book of Nahum. And I want you to notice the two attributes of God running side by side. His wrath and his, and his anger. Look at this. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and events his wrath against his enemies. The Lord, though, is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. But look, the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but... He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. The wrath of God is real. Now, some would say, well, that's just an Old Testament thing. God of wrath is Old Testament. New Testament God is different. You would be wrong. Let me, let me give you an example. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus himself, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. 
The wrath of God is real. It's not, a, it's, it's not an Old Testament, just an old picture of God. It is it's something that runs alongside for, of who he is. But in reality, people want to deny God's wrath. They want to say, you know, God is a God of love. This God of wrath stuff, that's, that's old, that's antiquated. They want to try to, to discount it because many of us are just uncomfortable talking about it. They want to, uh, in my opinion, that even, even some preachers and theologians, they struggle with it because it just seems hard. But here's what you got to understand. If you read the scriptures and you are still able to deny the wrath of God is real and exists, that's not only dangerous, it's sad. Because the wrath of God is that real. But let me just say this from my profession. If a preacher can read the scriptures and proclaim to people he's supposed to be helping and he would say that there is no such thing as the wrath of God or eternal punishment, in my opinion, that's criminal. It's the most unloving thing a loving pastor could do is not to warn the, to not be the fireman that says, I don't care if you're uncomfortable, you are in danger and I've got to warn you. Does that make sense? That's the importance of the topic of the wrath of God. So starting in verse 1, verse 18, and that's where we're going to just stay on today is that particular verse. I want, to, I want to use four phrases to kind of help us understand what Paul is talking about as he describes this wrath and what this looks like. Because we need an understanding of it, and he's going to, over the next several verses, describe it, the results and the consequences. But he gives with this understanding, and I'll start this way. God's wrath is real and unique. Look at the way he describes it. It's the wrath of God... And it's being revealed from heaven. So this wrath, understand, is a divine wrath. That's important. It's not human wrath. It's not wrath. And it it comes, literally, it has a a heavenly origin. You see, when we think of wrath, some of the reasons we have trouble with God having wrath is because all we know wrath from is a human perspective. And what he's trying to tell us is this wrath is something that you've never experienced before. You don't understand wrath because you understand it only from a human way of thinking. Because when we think of wrath, it usually suggests to us someone that is red-faced and outburst and and a temper tantrum and and being angry and throwing things and and, and hurting and cruelty. That's when we think of wrath, that's what we think of. We think of it in, in human terms. And so that's why we think, well, this would be unworthy of God. God would never do that and and you would probably be right to understand that that because you're just seeing it from a a human perspective biblically speaking the wrath of God by definition means settled determined indignation and displeasure it's something that has come up against the holiness of God and God has to show in in that sense his holiness comes and it it comes in conflict with and so it becomes this settled this this displeasure this, this consistent you know sometimes as humans you can understand that we use the term people have righteous indignation have you ever heard that right and what is that we 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 actually kind of appreciate that that means you get angry over something that is wrong and when someone does something, you stand up in righteous indignation. Well, here's what you got to know about God. All of his indignation is righteous. Everything that God does, it, it, this, this wrath, it's righteous. It has a holy, it has a, a heavenly bent. It's not about being cruel or being, or being uh, fickle or capricious. He's about, he, this is all of who God is. It's, but, but the truth about that statement, which is kind of interesting, is even if we are righteously indignant, it's never totally righteous because we're human. So something in our righteous indignation is going to have a human bent to it 
It's probably going to have an anger that shouldn't be there, and it's going to lash out in a way that probably is, is not godly, right? So that's us. We, don't even, we can't even truly have righteous indignation, but all of God's indignation is righteous. It is all based on his holiness, and it comes from this, this heavenly place, from this God. Everything about God's wrath, is, it's, it's judicial. It's what is deserved, it's because of what sin is. It's not God's pride was hurt and so he's lashing out in anger or, or someone has offended him by, and, and so he's, just, he's mad. It, this is judicial. It goes about based on what has been done and he gives, in, in all things, God as a judge stands and righteously gives judgment. That's, that's the wrath of God. Romans chapter 2, which we'll get to later, but look what he's going to say in chapter 2, verse 5. The day of God's wrath... When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. God is saying, listen, as a judge, Paul says, God stands and he repays the wrath because of the sin. And it is just, it is real, it is, but it is, God, it is from God. It has his holiness. It's that which he's done. God, God doesn't, re, he reacts adversely to evil because if he didn't, he wouldn't be morally perfect. If he didn't have this wrath, he wouldn't be the God of holiness. If he didn't react the way that he, if he didn't have the same reaction to sin as he does to love, then he wouldn't be the holy God that he is. That is the wrath of God shows the, the importance of God. It, what we have in God is wrath describes God's resolute action in punishing sin. God says, I am holy, here is sin, and it must be punished, and there becomes the wrath of God. It's a manifest, manifestation of his hatred of ungodliness and immorality. That's who God is, and that's what has to happen. And that leads us to a second thought that we see in Romans 1.18. God's wrath goes wherever sin is. This verse continues. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness. Two phrases that I want to grab out of that verse for us to talk about the first is that phrase, it is, is being revealed. It should sound familiar just from what we read earlier. Verse 17, remember what it said? The righteousness of God is revealed. So we know that the righteousness of God is revealed and describes it in the gospel. It's revealed in Jesus. The fact that Jesus gave his life, he died and was buried and rose again. That's the righteousness of God. And, but that, that verb is used in the sense of this was a one-time action. This was a one-time event. Jesus died, was buried, rose again. And with that, God's righteousness is revealed. But this is a different tense of the verb. It's the same verb, revealed. It means something that's been brought to light. But notice it's in the present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed. It's the idea that this wrath of God is, is something that's going on for all time. It's a constant disclosure that as long as sin is operating, the wrath of God is operating. It goes, it, 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 it's going side by side in that sense that God's wrath has always been revealed to sinful people and it will continue to be revealed until that final day of wrath, which we'll talk about as we move through Romans. It will continually, as long as sin is evident, wherever sin goes, the wrath of God must go because of, of who he is. Let me give you some examples from, from biblical history. Genesis chapter 3. Man and woman in a garden. Everything is perfect in innocence. But Eve trusts the serpent's word over God's. They take of the fruit. 
and then they are immediately suffering the consequences. The, the sentence of death passes upon them. Not only their separation from God, but ultimately their bodies die. The sin, and that death now is passed on all because Adam is the ultimate ancestor. And we all have inherited the sin. That's the wrath of God in action. And it's been in action since sin originated. You don't have to move too far in Genesis chapter number 6 and 7 to see it again. When God sends a flood and drowns all but eight people on the earth. What is that? That's the wrath of God running alongside the sin, the wickedness of mankind. You keep moving through Genesis. There's a lot of examples. Chapter 18 and 19, there's two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, that God gives, that his wrath comes and destroys them completely. That's, again, the picture. God's wrath is being revealed. Paul is saying we have seen it through all the Old Testament. We've seen it in history. It is still constantly in in work. Exodus 14, there's ten plagues that come upon Egypt because of, of who they are and because of who they've got in slavery. And then, ultimately, all of Pharaoh's army is is drowned in the sea. That's a picture of God's wrath being revealed as it does throughout the history of sin. 2 Kings 17 and 25 shows Judah and Israel, God's chosen people, but they walked away from God. They, they thumbed their nose at God. They ignored God. And ultimately, God set them, set captors to Babylon and Assyria, and they were taken in captivity. Why? Because wherever sin goes, the wrath of God is going to be there. There's going to be this evidence. God's wrath is being revealed. What we're going to see in the next verses in Romans that it's still being revealed. It's not just something that's waiting. There is an ultimate wrath, but it is still in this this waiting period, in this time when, when it comes to a final climax. And there's a verse I want you to see. Revelation chapter number 19 says that he, and we're talking of Jesus, treads the winepress, look at this, of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. There will come a time when God's wrath will reach its climax, Jesus will be the one that institutes that. God's wrath is being revealed, leading up to this ultimate, this ultimate show, this ultimate state. Now, we go back to our verse, and it says, and it's against all godlessness and wickedness. Well, let's talk about what he's talking about. What, what is, what is the God's wrath against? I mean, we, we use the word sin, but we have these interesting definitions across the board. So God uses some, some great words. Godlessness means just what you just break down that word. It means as if God is not there. It's as people living as if God doesn't exist. And there are people who actually say they don't believe God exists or they, they doubt that God exists. And so that would fit in that category, but it literally means there's no respect, there's no reverence of who God is. So there are people who would say, sure, I believe in God, but they live their lives as if God doesn't exist. We call that practical atheism. Sure, God's there, but I don't care who he is. It doesn't matter to me. I'm still going to do life the way I want to do it. But you ask me if God exists, sure, I'll tell you. Or they'll, they'll refer to him, he's an invisible force, or he's a higher power. All of these things about God, but I really don't care about his personal inf- So it's godlessness. It's living a life as if God doesn't ex- I'm going to do it my way. And that's ultimately the definition of sin is I want to do what I want to do. That's what Adam and Eve, God said this, that was clear. But I want to go my, I want to do my thing. Isaiah chapter 53 says that's what we were all like sheep. We've gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. It's godlessness. Even though we know the truth, we walk as if God's truth doesn't matter and we do our own thing. We find ourselves living godlessly, whether you call yourself an atheist or a Christian for all of your life. Anytime that you're living your life your own way, it's an exhibition of godlessness. And God's wrath is against all godlessness. And wickedness is this version. Your version may say unrighteousness. 
which is kind of plain. Anything that's not righteous. It's godlessness leads to unrighteousness. If you are willing to ignore whatever God, who God's existence is, then it, it involves everything that does not reach the standard of God's perfection. That's what right, uh, wickedness means. Anything doesn't meet God's standard. Anything that falls short of perfection is wickedness. And that involves what we do to God and what we do to one another. He says, and God's wrath is against all of it. So in case you haven't been keeping score, every one of us is involved in that verse. At some point, in many points in most of our daily lives, we would have to say that was godless or wicked. And God's wrath sends beside saying there's going to have to be something done about all that. God's wrath is against all of that. But wait a minute. Let's wait a second. You say, well, hold on, okay? Now I'm living a pretty, pretty decent life here and there. I, I granted I'm not, but, but there are a lot of people who are living by definition of those words. God doesn't exist, I don't care, living. And they seem to be doing great. I mean, they got everything they ever wanted. They seem to be happy. So they're, they're on their yacht having a great time, right? They're just enjoying. Where is God's wrath? Why is God's wrath not being? Remember this, and please be thankful for this, that God's wrath, you'll often see, is a patient wrath. And it's a wrath that ultimately is shown, but there's often times for, for God's, it, Second Peter refers to the patientness of God that sometimes we think means he, it, when we see that he doesn't do anything, we think it's disregarded. Do not understand God's wrath is still there. There is still, there are still consequences for all sin and it comes out. And in fact, Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, we read part of it earlier, but listen to what he says. You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. It's as if God has given you a chance, but you keep going down this path, and you're just building the accounts. You're storing up wrath. And when that ultimate day comes, you will understand God does always clears the books. He always will settle the accounts. That always will come to play. I read a story. Maybe this will help understand. Donald Barnhouse was a pastor in Philadelphia back in the mid-last century. Great preacher in Philadelphia, and he told the story that he'd heard once of a bunch of Midwest farmers back in the early days, you know, the churches didn't have air conditioning, the doors were open, and they came to meet together. They were godly men and women, and they met together for church. And there was one farmer right across the street from the church that chose on that day to get his tractors out, and he was just doing all the plowing right in front of the church. And the noise was disturbing the audience, and they couldn't do anything. And it was, they were just so upset. And the man said, I, I did that for a point, the farmer did. He wrote in the local newspaper, in the speak out of the local newspaper. You know what I'm talking about, okay? He wrote in the local newspaper that next week. He said, I, I did that to show you something. He said, I don't believe in God. I have no respect for God or his day. And yet, I've got the most profitable crops in all of the county. He said, explain that one. The editor wrote a comment back, and he simply said this. Sir, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. But he does settle his account. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness. So what we consider to be a little sin, godliness and wickedness, you're going to see from Romans here through Romans 3 that this is an all-encompassing universal idea of what God's wrath does, which leads us to this third thought. God's wrath is universally necessary. 
Let me finish out the verse again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godliness, godlessness and wickedness. And notice, of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's wrath, as we're going to see, is going to be something we're going to see is against all of us. That all, that all of us stand in, in need of this. That it's against every one of us. But I want you to notice the description he uses. It's people which would include you and me, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That The word suppress is what you know. It means to hold down. It's, it's the picture of, of literally holding something down, not letting it get up again. Like I used to do to my brothers, right? You hold them down where you can't. You're right. It's that idea. It's suppressing. It's holding down. It's there, but you don't let it come to the surface. The truth is there, but you don't want it. One commentator put it this way. We take and we put the truth in a box, and then we sit on the lid so that it doesn't come out. It's not that we deny the truth. We know the truth is there. We just won't let it, we won't let it affect our lives. We won't let it change us. And what he's saying is the problem with, with mankind, the reason God's wrath is here is because man has known the truth, and man still knows the truth. And man, and we're going to see deep down and through all that God has done, God has shown himself and shown the truth, and yet man suppresses it. Man says, I don't want to talk about it. Man says, you can, you, that's your opinion, and I got mine. Don't share your religion. Keep it to yourself. Whatever your words are, you suppress it. I don't want to hear it. You, the truth is there, and you choose to say, well, if I don't talk about it, then it's going to go away, right? But that, ooh, that pain in my chest. Well, if I don't go to the doctor, then it'll go. It doesn't, do you understand? It's that idea of it's there, and it's truth, and this wrath is real, and yet man has chosen to suppress it, chosen to say it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't, well, it, it, it's, not, it's not for me. It's just a, it, the God is real, but I don't really care. It, it, it's a matter whatever you want to say. And then we're going to talk more about this in detail next week. But I want to suffice it with wrapping up verse 20. This is going to be a passage, a section. Get into verse 20, he says this. So that people are without excuse. Those people, in verse 18, you and me, who suppress truth, who hear truth, but then say, hey, I don't want to listen to it. I want to do my way. I'm not ready for me. to. T I don't want to change, whatever. We suppress the truth by our wickedness. Those people are without excuse. The one thing that's going to be clear is when we stand before God, and we will stand before God, we're not going to be able to say, oh, but God, you just don't understand. I grew up in a bad situation. Do you, did you see my circumstances? Or God, I, I wanted to, but I just, it wasn't the right time. Or God, we're going to stand before God without excuse. There's no excuses. We're not going to have anything to hold up to, to be able to say God's wrath is not deserving to me because God has all the records. And he will say, listen, all people are without excuse. Folks, I don't know about you, but that verse... I've been a Christian a long time, and that verse still shudders, sends a shudder down my spine. For the, for the people that, that I know who don't know Christ, but live as if it really doesn't matter and it doesn't seem to bother them at all, and they're going to stand before God and there's not going to be an excuse. Oh God, but I went to church. Oh God, but I did this. Oh God, but I, God says, wait a second. My wrath is still real, and your sins leave you without any excuse. But I don't want to stop the conversation 
with that. Because the last part I want you to grab about God's wrath is so critical that we never forget. And it comes to this. God's wrath is a part of God's love. Now that may not make sense to you. May kind of be odd. Because some of us, when I talk about God's wrath, and, and, and you're doing pretty good keeping your faces straight, but some of you are, are not liking some of what I'm saying today. And some of you are, are kind of trying to figure it out. It's kind of, kind of going against some of the things that you've always wanted to think and believe. This judgment, this wrath of God. How can I believe in a God of wrath? If he's really love, how could he have wrath? Why is he so mad? What is this God? Why is it, why, what kind of loving God is filled with this kind of wrath? Those are the questions that are going through a lot. And so we don't understand. But let me just point it out this way. In reality, a God without wrath is a God without love. If God doesn't have wrath, as we talked about, against the evil and the sin, how could he be a God of love? A loving person, let's think about it, is often filled with wrath because of who they love. and what they. I read this quote, an author by the name of Pippert, Becky Pippert, wrote these. Think how we feel when we see someone that we love who is ravaged by unwise actions and relationships. Do we respond with tolerance, just like they're a stranger, as if, oh, that's not a big deal? No, we do just the opposite. We're angry. We're upset about what's, how it's hurting their lives. Because the truth is, hate is, is the opposite of love. And the, and the ultimate form of hate is indifference. If we don't care, then that's hatred. So for God to say, oh, just do your own thing, then that would be indifference. That wouldn't be love. God seeing what sin does to us has to hate the, the sin and its effects upon the people he created. She goes on to say, if I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but it's a settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating at the insides of the human race because he loves us with his whole being. For God to have wrath means that God loves, but he sees what sin and the disease is doing to us, and his wrath must be meted out on that sin because he has created us and he loves us. She gives a great picture, doesn't she, when she talks about the cancer of sin? Because many in this room have been touched by that awful disease of cancer in some form or another. And now we have rallies that we march trying to get a cure. And I see shirts that talk about we're going to kick cancer in the butt. And we're just, what is that? That's wrath against something that's hurting someone we love. And for God not to have wrath against the sin that is destroying his people would not be a God of love. The wrath of God is actually showing how much God loves us. And, and here's where, I, I got a spoiler alert for you, okay? We're going to be walking through Romans, but I got to tell you, the good news, I got to move ahead a little bit because I got to show you what this, this wrath and how, because when we understand and we think, you know, that sometimes we shudder at the idea of hell, but when we understand that what, what God's wrath shows us is what degree God will go to rescue us. And what extent God will go to bring us back to life and to get us out of that wrath. And what God did through his son Jesus to take us out of the wrath. It's just amazing. When we say, for God so loved the world. But what's the next phrase? That he gave his only son. See, now that makes sense. God loved us. I, let's just stop right there. Let's, God is love. But God is love and his wrath is against sin. And the only way 
that God can show love is if he does something to take care of that sin that brings his wrath. And so what did he do? He gave his only son for us. And when we see the extent of what wrath is against, us, against sinfulness and against the wickedness, then we recognize how far God really went because of his love for us. So, spoiler alert, Romans chapter number 5. Let me read a couple of verses. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now look, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Now look at this verse. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved, here we go, from God's wrath through him, Jesus Christ. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. The sin is real. The wrath of God is real. It's unique. It's from God. And it, it, it's, it's warranted because of what it is and how it destroys us. But God has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, to remove that wrath from us. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1, Paul said it this way, They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. And that's Jesus. Now look at this. Who rescues us from the what? The coming wrath. The, the appearance of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, why it is so important is we are under God's wrath and the only hope we have is to be delivered from that wrath by someone who rescues us and that's exactly what the fireman comes and drags you out and that's what Jesus offers because of his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Now, here's what you got to understand. God's wrath is judicial. It's deserved. It's warranted. We have, by, by our own admission, we have turned for our, gone, on, gone our own ways in wickedness. So God's, God's wrath is deserved. But God's release is, is optional. It's possible for us. But here's the thing you've got to remember. That, that relief, that rescue, it's your choice. God's wrath to you, sitting here today, is not a wrath that you cannot escape because of what Jesus did, he now gives us a choice. You don't have to live under the wrath of God. You don't have to then someday be looking forward to, oh, when I stand before God, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that everything works. You can live in a peace and a confidence in the love of God, but it comes down to a choice, a decision that you make based on what Jesus Christ did for us. Listen how Jesus put it. John chapter 3, starting verse 18. Jesus said, whoever believes in him, that's the son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. It that comes down to you're either condemned or you're not, but the con condemnation comes not because God doesn't like you, becomes you've not believed. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life. Why? For God's wrath remains on him. God's wrath is real. It sets upon you as a sinful person. But God has offered a relief, a rescue through his son, Jesus Christ. But it comes down to those who, rather than reject the son, receive the son, believe in the son. And those who do, the wrath of God will no longer have effect on us. We are not under God's wrath any longer. Whew, powerful stuff. 
Believe or reject. It's a definite choice, specific decision. Today, it leaves me with two application, very simple application questions that I want to, you to, to write down and consider. If I believe that God's wrath is real, if you hear what you've heard today, or maybe you need to think about it, maybe you're, this is maybe new to you or you're still struggling with it, take these verses, dive into them, you look, look to a concordance, get on your Bible app, find it. You decide, if, if, as you read the scriptures, if what I've said is true, that God's wrath is real. If you believe that, if you come to that understanding, God's wrath is real, then I have two questions for you. Number one, have I chosen to receive God's rescue and forgiveness of sin? Most important question is, if you realize that you are under God's wrath, has there been a point in your life when you received God's rescue, you received salvation through Jesus Christ? Do you, can you point to a time when you realize this truth, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, and you pour, poured out your life and your heart to God and received him, and he began to change your life? Have you personally received the gift of eternal life? That's the first critical, most important question. But I do have a second question, and that's for those of us who have received that gift. And this second question is this. Will I care enough to share this reality with someone this week? Do I care enough to realize that my friends, my family, my coworkers, people I hang out with, if they have not received the gift of eternal life right now, are under God's wrath. And ultimately, if they, without receiving Christ, will spend eternity under that wrath. Do, do I care enough to warn them? Do I care enough to be uncomfortable, to go against the social etiquette and yank them out of their beds and say, you gotta listen to this. You may not like this, but do we care enough to share this particular truth? There's a story that's been kind of circulating around some of, my, some of the people I've been with the last few days. And it's just interesting how this story keeps coming up from different sources. And so I did a little research on it, and I, and I wanted to share, I'm going to show a clip in a minute about just the, the, the fullness of this particular story. And it's, it's focused around a, a man who many of you recognize if you're into entertainment. His name's Penn Jillette from Penn and Teller, the magicians from Las Vegas, right? Well, Penn Jillette is a... He's an outspoken, even hostile atheist. And he, he not only doesn't believe in God, he likes to mock those who do and mock the truth. I mean, he's just, he's pretty adamant about that, and, and that's all pretty out there on, on his websites and so forth. But he tells a story, and I'm going to share a piece of it in a minute. He's gonna, he tells a story of how a few years ago, after a show, a man very humbly and very compassionately offered him a gift and it was a gift of a, a New Testament, a Gideon New Testament. And he, he simply handed them this Bible and wrote a note in the Bible, giving him an opportunity to contact him. And it didn't, at that point, change his mind about God. He still, still says to be an atheist, but you can see, and you'll see on the video, it had an incredible positive effect. But he also says something that I want every one of us as Christians to hear this morning. So watch the screen. I want you to see this today. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. 
and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. How much do you have to hate someone to believe that eternal life exists and not tell them about it. The wrath of God is real. The wrath of God is deserved. It's against all sin. But the hope of God through Jesus Christ is that we can receive rescue. If you've not received that today, then my prayer is that today God has got a hold of your heart and said, that's what you need. You're lost. You may have said you're a Christian, you may have, but you truly know that you've never repented and turned from your sin. And God is telling you, I love you and I offer you rescue if you'll come to me. But Christians, I can't hear this topic without recognizing, and it's not about guilt. I'm not trying to guilt anyone. I'm just trying to share a reality that God shared with me. And that is, if I really believe this, why would I want to tell somebody who needs to hear it? Why is being socially acceptable more important than them hearing truth?